Maybe you're here at the beginning of the year and there are some things, commitments that you have made. We've talked about resolutions and other uh, such uh, commitments that you might have. And there's all kinds of advice in the ways that we can remember the things that we um, have committed ourselves to. Maybe you've been in a, a Bible study and there was a particular verse of Scripture that was supposed to be applicable. And so there's encouragement or instructions in ways that you can potentially put that verse in front of you. Maybe you're supposed to write it on your mirror, or you're supposed to put a sticky note, or you're supposed to put a reminder on your phone. I have one that goes off every day at 10.02 to remind me to pray based on Matthew 10.2 or Luke 10.2? Luke 10.2. Thanks, Casey. Luke 10.2, which says that we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up and send out workers into the harvest. And so 10.02, there's an alarm that goes off. The problem, though, oftentimes I have found with those things that become routine is they just kind of fade into the environment. They just kind of become like the wallpaper, and maybe I know that that alarm goes off. I know what it's supposed to do, and though it's supposed to be something that stops me in my tracks, no matter what it is that I'm in the middle of so that I can devote that time to pray, sometimes I just know that it's there, I acknowledge it in my mind, and I blow right on by it. Maybe that's what's happened to the verse that's put on your dashboard or on your mirror at home or even in just in your memory. Or maybe you wear something like a, a gospel bracelet that's supposed to be there to remind you of the story of the gospel, but it just becomes so routine that it fades into the back of your mind and fades out of view until someone pops in and asks you, hey, what's that for? Or what's that mean? And it's when something out of the ordinary comes in and redirects our focus that we revisit that thing that means so much, that commitment that we might have made. That is the entire purpose of setting aside entire Sundays to go back to the gospel. Because it can be something that we lay as a foundation and then build beyond or move beyond until we take the time to stop and refocus our attention in such a way that we see once again the beauty of the gospel. We have seen just recently in preaching through 2 Peter that Peter tells us how easy it is for us to forget. And as he is ending his life and therefore ending his ministry, or as it's coming to a conclusion, he is committed to write 2 Peter to remind the people of the very thing that they already know and are supposed to know so that he can hold it in front of them. Paul says the same thing. He says in one of his letters, I want to remind you of what I received the, of first importance, that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised three days later in accordance with the Scriptures. And so both Peter and Paul find it important to consistently remind Christians of the gospel because it's so slippery. It's something that if we're not careful, it will just fade into the background and become something that is assumed but not necessarily focused on. A verse in Scripture that I think if you have been in church, you are familiar with. It's probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And because of that, it is one that can oftentimes just fade into the background. We hear it referenced, or we know it, and we go, oh yeah, I know that verse. I've memorized that verse as a child. I've sung songs about that verse. I, I get it. And then you move on to the real meat. But this morning, I want to hold in front of us the jewel that is John 3.16, and spend some time focusing on and meditating on this verse and what it means. Jesus says to the Pharisee Nicodemus in the middle of a dialogue, 
these words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank You for the beauty that is grace and mercy, rescue, redemption, life everlasting in Jesus. Lord, may we never take it for granted. But Heavenly Father, may it be something that shapes us. Lord, let us be a gospel-centered church. Let us be gospel-centered people, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children. Let us be those, Heavenly Father, that everything that we do, that, Lord, we never depart from the first truth, the most important truth, that is the gospel. May we be tethered to it, that, Lord, we might never move beyond it. So, Lord, speak to us in your word for your, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. John 3.16 begins where the Bible begins. And John 3.16 begins where the gospel begins. The gospel always begins with God. The Bible begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world began by God, was begun by God. And yet it's easy for us to go through our days and become so complacent or comfortable that God is just an afterthought. We spend our entire day, maybe there is a moment in our lives or in our day when there's something particularly difficult, but there's a pressure point that happens in the day, and we remember, oh yeah, God, you're around. Let me talk to you for a second because I really need some help right now. But how much of our lives is so often God is just assumed to be with us, and we pay him very little mind. But what John 3.16 and the mission and the life of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us is that though we may oftentimes pay God very little mind, he is not a God who ignores us. He is a God instead who looks intently upon us and he loves us and he is always a God who is faithful to pursue his people in love. For God loved God looked at each and every one of us, and he loved us. It can be easy for us to buy into the false narrative, especially when we give way to our circumstances, and life isn't necessarily going the way that we want, and we're in, the, in a particular trial or a season of tribulation, and we're not hearing our prayers answered, or maybe life is just particularly difficult, or we're watching pain and suffering take place in the world or in those that are around us. Like the prophets, we look at the world and we see both, both idolatry, pursuits of false gods, and we see grave injustice where people with power abuse that power and grasp it and hurt those that are around them. And we can oftentimes ask the question, God, where are you? Or even in our personal experiences as Christians in our daily lives, we can have this felt experience like God is ignoring me. Maybe he's just up there and he's upset with me and so he is separating himself from me. Maybe God's just cranky today. Maybe he's bitter. Maybe you, like I, grew up with this notion of God that God's just this dad who's impossible to please. And no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I always fall short. But the Bible teaches us, and what God says of himself is that God is love. 
That's what John tells us in one of his letters, that God is love. What that means is that love does not define God. God defines love. If you want to know what love looks like, look to God. If you want to know what love feels like, look to God. If you want to understand love, God is the one who defines love. God is love. And because God is love, everything that he does is loving. And so because God loves, and because of God being who he is, God loved the world. The gospel doesn't merely begin with God. The gospel is for a broken world. For God loved the world. In all of John's literature, this word world is very rarely used positively. Most often, it is John's shorthand for the world that exists in rebellion against God. The world that is pursuing other gods. The world of idolatry and injustice. Because what the Bible teaches us is that from the very beginning, we as human beings have struggled against, wrestled with, and rebelled against a good and righteous and loving God. Despite the fact that everything that Adam and Eve needed for their lives was provided for them by a loving and good and personal God in the garden where they were protected and they had all of the food that they could possibly need and they were able to exist within before one another naked and unashamed and in perfect relationship with the God, nevertheless, they listened to the temptation of the serpent and desired to be gods themselves. And so instead of honoring the boundary that God had placed for them, they reached beyond the boundary to take what was not theirs. And they disobeyed. They rebelled. And in rebelling, they ran into brokenness and became enemies of God. But God, because of who He is and because of His love, pursued them. Romans 5 tells us that while we were enemies at the right time, Christ died for us. Because God's not the kind of God who writes off those who rebel against him and are his enemies. Instead, God is the kind of God who redeems them. And the testimony of Scripture about humanity is clear that every single one of us are guilty of this same form of rebellion against God and running into our lives and determining, I can do better than him. And so I don't need to obey. Whether that is blatant, like that statement sounds, or maybe it's just really subtle. It says, I don't need you, God. So I won't pray. We wrestle with him and we rebel against him. And when we run from him, what we run into is not life and power like we think or control. It's darkness and brokenness and death. Romans 3.23 says every single one of us are guilty of this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, Romans 6.23, is death. And that is what the broken world deserves. And every single one of us, as we continue to wrestle with our brokenness and wrestle with ourselves, are doing something to repair the brokenness that is around us. And what we'll find when we do this in our own strength is that we inevitably end up more broken than we started. Because we will never be able to rescue ourselves from the darkness. We must be rescued from the darkness by someone outside of the darkness. And this is the message of the gospel. That into this dark and broken world, because God's, of God's love for that world, he sent his one and only son. 
His love compelled him to do something. And so the gospel begins with God, and it is for a broken world, but the gospel is a beautiful display of what true love actually is. God didn't merely love the world in sentiment. He loved the world in action. It's so easy for us to spend our lives telling people flippantly, I love you, I care for you, I'll pray for you, and never actually follow through. Love looks like something. Love must show up in our lives and the way that we speak to or about one another. And God's love looked like sending his one and only son. We oftentimes read John 3.16, and some of you, many of you have heard me say this before, and we read it, God so loved the world. And we think of that word so there being a declaration of the quantity of God's love for the world. He loved the world so much. But the truth of the matter is, that's not what that word means. What that word actually best translates as is God loved the world in this way. God's love looked like something. The way that we understand the quantity of God's love is not that little word so, it's who he sent, his one and only son, and what he sent him to do, which was to take on the punishment and the wrath that we deserve for our sin and give to us then a righteousness that isn't our own. And that's what it means that God sent his only son. As Jesus is telling this to Nicodemus, when he says that God sent, he gave his only son, that gaveness, the sentness of Jesus Christ is a shorthand for the entire ministry of Jesus. He didn't send Christ into the world simply to straighten things out. As a dad, it's really easy for me to armchair judge. And there's something going on in the back room, and I'll send one of the boys to tell the other boy to stop jumping on the bed or this or that or the other, and I send an emissary to get the problem fixed. But Jesus says in verse 17, if you just go to the very next verse, God didn't send the Son of the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send Jesus in with a big stick to beat everybody into submission. Instead, he sent him into the world to be beaten, that he might bear upon himself the very things that we deserve. God sent Christ to sacrifice himself for our salvation. The wages of sin is death. That's the consequence that you and I and every human being who has ever existed apart from Jesus deserves. Jesus not deserving that. Instead, embraced that. He took death upon himself so that all those who would believe in him would then receive eternal life everlasting life. God didn't simply send Jesus into the world not only to straighten things out, but just to show off. There's a a desire in so many of us to see God's power on display in our lives. We read about the New Testament church and we read about miracles taking place here and there and all of these different ways that God's power is on display. But God's not in the business of showing off. Everything that Christ did, whether it was casting out a demon or raising a dead person back to life, was a display of his glory and his power, yes, but for the purpose of drawing men unto himself to prove that he was God incarnate and that it was God incarnate who died because that's what it takes for sinners to be saved. Jesus came to rescue us from our brokenness and to rescue a people unto himself. And that people comes from the broken world. 
That would have been a shocking word, especially to a Jewish audience who believed that the Messiah was only for them. And when Jesus said that to a Pharisee, a leader of the Jewish people, that God sent his son into the world, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life, it's the beginning of a transformed community that we see portrayed in Acts as the gospel goes beyond its Jewish boundaries and into the Gentile world so that the promise of God would be manifested among the people that all who believe in him will be spared the very thing that we deserve, which is death, and receive the very thing that we don't, which is everlasting life. And that everlasting life isn't just, hey, do you want to live forever? Believe in Jesus. The eternal life there for John and for Jesus is shorthand for a life with God in Christ. It's the very same thing that Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he talks about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This intimate fellowship that, become, that comes from a knowing of Jesus Christ personally, not just theologically, not just intellectually, but experientially and personally. He is my friend who walks with me and talks with me and calls me his very own. Please don't ever sing that song before I have to preach. I've heard it at too many funerals. It just bums me out. But that is who he is. A personal God who, like in the garden, came down in the cool of the day to fellowship with his people is the God who now sends his spirit to live inside our hearts, to lead us, to guide us, to be a friend that we can even grieve is what Paul says. We're to know him and be known by him. And so everlasting life isn't just about quantity, it's really about quality. That we would receive a quality of life that is from God. And that is such a beautiful display of what love really is. That love is selfless as Jesus Christ came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to sacrifice. True love is selfless. It is sacrificial. It is for the benefit of someone else, no matter the cost to myself. And that is how God loved us. And that is why the gospel is good news, because it is a message of God's love. And the gospel demands a response, and it deserves to be remembered. So my question to you is, where are you today? on that spectrum of the story of God's love and everlasting life versus brokenness and rebellion, where do you exist? Are you suffering in the darkness and depression of your own rebellion? Are you experiencing the, the reality of the brokenness of the world? Maybe you're here this morning and you're really questioning this message of a God who loves because that's just not what you have experienced in your life as you have focused on your circumstances. My urging to every single person in this room is to hear the words of Jesus. God loved you in this way. He died for you. And he calls you to himself in his love and in his grace that you might not perish, suffer eternity separated from God, but that you might have and continue to have everlasting life.
turn to Jesus and trust in Christ. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I'm a Christian, but I still struggle with that brokenness stuff and feeling like God's angry and all of those different things. Congratulations, you're normal. I feel the same way. Because it's so easy for me to turn back and to go back to trying to wrestle with God for control of my life and to struggle through things. Here's the thing. The only way to win a struggle or the only way a struggle ends is when somebody surrenders. And here's the thing, big boy. God's not going to do it. So the answer to the struggles of our lives is always surrender. You and I are going to continue to wrestle with that brokenness and try to deal with our brokenness in our own way. Paul said that he did it. The things that I don't want to do, Romans chapter 7. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep on doing. And the very things that I want to do that bring God glory, those are the things I find it impossible in myself to do. And so he trusts and he turns to Christ. And our journey as Christians is never to move past the gospel, but only deeper independence upon the gospel. And allow the gospel to then transform our affections so that we can first experience God's love and then express God's love. So my prayer for you today is to ask you this question. What do you need to give to Jesus? Maybe it's your life for the very first time. But maybe it's control over that decision Maybe it's your health and your future. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your career. That thing that you are wrestling with and you've not yet fully surrendered to God who loves you and can only act in love for you. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Surrender to Him today. I invite you, if you would, would you take a moment and bow your heads and close your eyes? And would you simply pray, God, how can I turn to the gospel today? How can I believe in Jesus more today? Because the Christian life isn't a be better religion. It's a believe better faith.